May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's wonderful to be here at uh, Falls Church. I've heard so much about this church. But um, it was very kind of you, the music group, to uh, have two Australian songs. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that, if you read the, the, the bottom line. It's a group called City of Light. Uh, Johnny Robinson leads that group, and his father's a bishop and was one of my students when I was a lecturer at Moore College many years ago. And so I feel very much at home having the, the gospel, the only one gospel, I think, and, and the goodness of Jesus in that last song. So it's very good to see you expanding your repertoire along those lines. And very good choices you make, too. I'm very grateful for uh, Sam Ferguson for the invitation to come and preach, especially when you're in a series in James, and I've sort of interrupted your series, so just hold on to James, he'll come back next week. And, uh, but I wanted to share with you some thoughts from uh, Mark's Gospel, the passage which was read so well by our sister, and it's a familiar passage. It's probably a passage where you know it quite well, but I hope that this morning we might delve into this passage and, and uh, find things new and things old from God's treasure trove in his revelation to us. Mark's gospel, of course, doesn't start with the narrative of his birth, as we find in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Uh, we jump into uh, John the Baptist, and we jump into Jesus' teaching ministry. And his teaching ministry is quite significant. And it's very soon on, even in chapter 1. Oh, if you've got your Bibles, it's page 837, if I'm not mistaken, if you want to look up uh, Mark chapter 2. And uh, in chapter 1... When he's teaching in Capernaum, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. We've heard lots of people preaching, not in this church, I'm sure, um, who don't teach with authority. They're flim-flam people. They pick up thoughts or a bit of poetry here or there, try to speak of some social issue and don't bring to you the living word that nourishes the soul. And that's what Jesus did. Not only were his words sweet, but they were authoritative. And the people recognized that. At the end of chapter 1, we find that uh, when, when Jesus seeks to go into the next town to find to, that he may preach there also, for that is why I came out, he says, and then at the end of the, of the chapter, as he seeks to a quiet place, he couldn't openly go in the towns because people came to him from every quarter. He was like a magnet. People uh, waited upon every word that he gave. Crowds would, would gather around him. I, I'm always reminded when I read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel where he starts off the sermon in chapter 5 with just this group of the disciples with him, just the 12 people. And then by the end of the sermon, he has a great crowd of people there. Oh, how I've longed to give a sermon where there were more people at the end than there were at the beginning. <laughs> I've experienced it in the reverse, of course. Uh, but to have the word of God coming with such authority that people would flock. And that's exactly what we find in the second chapter of Mark. 
In this narrative, there are four groups of people. Uh, the key person, of course, is Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Jesus, the teacher. Uh, the second group are the crowd. Uh, the crowd, as we've seen, they were amazed with Jesus' teaching, one with teaching with authority. They gathered around him. They'll be amazed again at the end of this narrative. And as we move through the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, the crowd are there around him, but then they become a bit ambivalent. And then towards the end of the Gospel, they become outright opposing to Jesus, belligerent, baying for blood at his trial. The movement of the crowd is an oscillating movement. But then, of course, you have the faithful disciples, the four men bringing their friend. And they, of course, are key to this story and key to discipleship, those who believe in Jesus and follow him and have their sins forgiven. And the fourth set of characters are the scribes. These are the teachers of the law. These are the ones who, they're scribes because they write things down. They've got their tablets, <laughs> different kind of tablet than from today, but nonetheless, they've got their stylus and tablet and they're taking notes on Jesus' teaching to make sure that it squares with the teaching of Moses because we don't want any heterodoxy here in Capernaum. Thank you very much. They've come up from Jerusalem. They follow Jesus. They're concerned about the crowds gathering because it's a challenge to their authority. They want to be the teachers. They want to have the people in the palm of their hand. So we've got Jesus, the crowd, the five men, and the scribes. We've, we open the scene where Jesus comes, he's been away for a while in, somewhere in Galilee, he comes back to Capernaum, back, and it says, the text says, he came home. It's not his own personal home. It is uh, most likely the home of a friend of his. Uh, in chapter one, we know he went to uh, Peter's home, and indeed, Peter, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. I like to tell my Roman Catholic friends that the first pope was married. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> here, here he is uh, healing people as well as teaching. And so the, the word got out. Young people can hardly understand how the word could get out without Instagram. You know, how is it possible could people know something's on without Facebook or uh, TikTok or whatnot, whatever it is. Um, social media is not alive and well, but the word gets out. Word of mouth, that's what happened in the ancient world. But crowds gathered. We don't know how big this house was, but it was a house which had a capacity for a large number of people because people are hanging outside the doors. So great is the privilege of hearing Jesus teach. If you had the option of living in any century other than this one, what would you choose? You might choose the first century, although there were no flushing toilets in those days, but because then you could have heard Jesus face to face and sat at the master's feet. But friends, whenever you open your Bible, you're hearing the master speak. You don't need to be in the first century. You're blessed with the written record of God's revelation 
to all humans for all time in the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's why the Word of God is central to our Anglican services. We have the Word of God read from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We have the Word of God explained. Our songs are richly inscribed with the Word of God in their teaching. And our prayers come to God. The Word of God is central because we believe that God speaks to us. And that's why we love to come to church. It's a taste of heaven. Had you realized what heaven's going to be like? I remember a student of mine once said, oh, heaven sounds boring, just playing harps all the time. I said, no, no, no. When the angels cry out, holy, 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 hallelujah, hallelujah, they're not just singing what they learnt in choir practice. They're responding with, to the fresh revelation that God gives them moment by moment. Heaven will be in the presence of God who is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and the one who knows everything, and we will never exhaust the knowledge of God. Had you thought of that? That we will, we will be receiving fresh revelation beyond what the Scriptures have. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed, says Deuteronomy 29, 29, are written to us that we might observe every words of his law, to us and to our children. Yes, there are secret things, but there'll be more things to learn in heaven. Revelation, and so we will bow before the throne of God, calling out, holy, holy, holy. It'll never be boring, my brothers and sisters. It'll be exciting. It'll be a joy. And we'll be there with the saints, a great multitude that no one can number throughout the history of the world, all those who have put their trust in Yahweh and his Messiah, Jesus. Those are the saints in glory that we shall join. So the word of God is being taught by Jesus as, it is, as the word of God is being taught today. And this crowd is there. And then we put our, our, our attention is drawn to four young men with a friend. But the friend is paralyzed. He has no means of mobility. He can't get there. And they decide, look, Jesus is in town. We've heard that he's there. We must go. And we'll take you with us. We'll be late getting there because we've got to carry you. But how wonderful to have such friends. Friends who brings someone to Jesus. I don't know how you learnt about Jesus. Maybe it was your mother and father. Maybe it was your pastor. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe you read or, or heard a broadcast or something like that. But look back and be grateful for the person who introduced you to Jesus. I saw this paralyzed man look back and was thankful for his four friends who took the trouble, made the effort, and walked who knows how far to get to Capernaum 
to hear Jesus. Of course, when they get there, what do they find? There's no room. They can't get in. And there's no disabled access in the first century. You'd have thought there'd be some place for them to, to come in, but no, they're stuck outside. There's no loudspeaker. They're trying to look over the people's heads or listen through the, a crack in the window or whatever it might be. But what are they going to do? They've come all this way and they can't even hear what Jesus is saying. And that's why they've come. To see Jesus. To hear his words. The words of eternal life. And then one of them has this bright idea. I know. Why don't we go up outside on the roof and make a hole in the roof and then we'll be able to see him. You've got to be kidding, says one of them. We can't just do that. Well, we've come all this way. Nothing should stop us from hearing Jesus. What obstacles might we put in the way for others to hear Jesus? These four friends, nothing would stop them. In the first century, of course, roofs were flat. They weren't um, uh, angled roofs like we have today. Uh, they were flat roofs. They were uh, a, a clay mixture was often the base, and sometimes there were sticks and bracken in that to sort of hold it together. The flat roofs, of course, you might recall Peter in Joppa in the Simon the Tanner's house in the book of Acts, where he's on the roof and that wonderful vision of the sheep coming down with all clean and unclean animals in it. And so that was a, he was there sort of sunbaking, I suppose, or praying and, and, uh, and listening, and God spoke to him. Well, there was a flat roof here in this house, probably stairwell outside the back stairs getting up because people would use their roofs. So they get up and they start digging. And digging. It's not just a small hole that they're digging. They're not going to slip their friend through a vertical manhole. That'll be a bit difficult for he's paralysed. So they've got to make a big rectangular hole. They've really got to work hard in order to do that. And you can imagine there is Jesus teaching to the crowd inside the room and a little bit of dirt comes down and then a bit more dirt and clay and a bit of roof falls down and then, then suddenly... All eyes are on the ceiling. You can imagine if this, if our, if there were more people wanted to come who are here today, we've got a, you know, a couple of hundred men up in Pennsylvania playing dodge, dodgeball or something, uh, hopefully reading the Bible as well. <laughs> and, uh, but imagine if, for example, some was on the roof and the roof started to, a bit of plaster came down and a bit more plaster and then a bit, bit more of the, the roofing material comes down and suddenly a big hole is in the Falls Church. The wardens are really upset at this point in time. <laughs> but all eyes would go up, wouldn't they? And I would stop preaching. And no doubt Jesus stopped preaching as this hole appears and then suddenly down comes on ropes of some sort this man on a pallet bed and it comes down into the center of the room. Nothing's quite a sermon stopper or something like that. All eyes upon this man. 
Four heads are looking over the hole in the roof, looking down to see what's going to happen next. And then all eyes turn to Jesus. What will he say? And Jesus said, seeing their faith. I don't think it's just the faith of the four men at the top, it's the faith of the man too. He came willingly. He didn't come kicking and screaming because he's paralyzed, but he, he came willingly because he wanted to see Jesus. And he's so grateful for his friends bringing him. And what does Jesus say? Seeing their faith. My son, your sins are forgiven. Those are the most powerful words that you will ever hear. If you put your trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. What an assurance. What a testimony to God's grace that Jesus should pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Well, not sure what the people at the top of the roof thought. Is that all? Anything else going to happen? He is paralysed and you're not only a teacher but also a healer. Not sure what was going on in their heads, but we know what was going on in the scribes' heads. Have you noticed in verse 5, or verse 6 rather, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course they're half right, aren't they? Only God can forgive sins. The reading from Micah 7, did you notice? Who is a God like you, pardoning our iniquity and passing over transgressions? That's God. Only God can forgive sins. But what the scribes did not realise is that God was in their presence, in the flesh of the man Jesus. Jesus was forgiving sins because he is God. But notice what Mark says next. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said, why do you question these things in your hearts? Can you imagine what the scribes were thinking then? Huh, did you say something? I didn't say anything. How come he knows what we're thinking? What's going on here? It's a gift that I've often coveted to know what's in the hearts of other people. Unfortunately, it's not been given to a bishop. No doubt Sam would like the gift too when he preaches Sunday by Sunday. So he's preaching there, excuse me, 10th row from the back, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> you're thinking about, have I got lunch ready today for my friends? Oh, over here, you're thinking because you've got an exam tomorrow. 
and you haven't done enough study for it, what are you going to do? Over here, you've got to meet the boss because the project's overdue. Over here, you're doing morning tea this morning and things aren't quite ready. Over here, you're thinking, how long's this sermon going to be? <laughs> be a great gift to have, wouldn't it, eh? Fortunately, God has not given that gift to humans. But of course, Jesus knows. Jesus knows your very thoughts. Jesus knows your very inclinations. Your deepest thoughts that you hide even from your family members. Jesus knows you through and through. And the wonder is that Jesus still loves you. Just like he loves me. Despite my flaws and my foolish thoughts and my sins. But as I come to him daily, as I say the Lord's prayers we have this morning, forgive us our trespasses. We say that because we know that God is a God who forgives those who are repentant, those who acknowledge their sins, those who put their trust in the God who can forgive sins. So Jesus addresses the scribes and he says to them this, what is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your bed and walk? Which is easier? Well, of course, in one sense, it's much easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Because who would know? What's the evidence? No change. We won't find out till the last day and that'll be a bit too late. As opposed to if I say, take up your bed and walk, well, unless he does so, the word's ineffective. Much more difficult to say that. But upon reflection, in Mark's gospel, it's much more difficult to say, your sins are forgiven and for the act to be real. Because the cost of forgiveness will be the death of the Son of God. As Mark leads his readers through the gospel, we will see that Jesus lives the life that neither you nor I could live and dies the death that you and I deserve. It is costly for God to forgive. God can't forgive just by divine fiat. He can't forgive by casting aside his eye from our sins. Because God is a righteous God, a holy God, who cannot behold evil. Therefore, sin must be dealt with. The wrath of God must be satisfied as we sang in Christ alone. Never forget that your salvation has come at a cost. 
Do not abuse God's grace and mercy towards you by ever forgetting the cost of your salvation. It's much more difficult for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, and for that to be there and true on the basis of what he would do in the traverse of his life over the next three years and in his death on that cross. But Jesus addresses the scribes and says, but in order that you might know that the Son of Man, notice he describes himself as the Son of Man because he's identifying with humanity. Son of Man is a phrase which has overtones of divinity as well from Daniel 7. In order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to the man, take up your bed, rise and walk. In other words, Jesus was displaying with the evidence that the scribes wanted that he has the power to forgive through this healing of the man. And so the man gets up, wraps up his bed, walks out. No doctors attending him, no nurses patting his brow, no physiotherapists massaging those decayed muscles which had not been used, they'd atrophied over the years, no pharmacist giving him medicine in order to enable that, no time needed because when Jesus declares someone's forgiven and healed, it's instantaneous, it's immediate. And the man walks out as if he'd never been paralyzed at all. Fit, full-bodied, strong muscles, strong bones, good walking gait, out in the midst of everyone, in the face of everyone. We hear nothing from the scribes. They've been silenced. They've had the presence of God in their midst and did not realize. And even this miracle did not convince them. Their eyes were blind. You know that even teachers in the so-called Church of God in this country teach things other than the Bible says. Like the scribes, their eyes are blinded. They can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But the crowd, what's the response of the crowd? They were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is extraordinary. They've never seen a miracle like this. They've never heard teaching like this. They've never heard a confrontation with the scribes like this. They were in the presence of glory. We don't hear from the man himself. Mark's interest is in what the crowd are saying. We don't hear from the four friends who likewise are no doubt amazed as they look more than they could have thought because this man has not just walked out healed, He's walked out forgiven. Jesus' healing is holistic. It's complete. 
and is instantaneous. Jesus still forgives. And perhaps if you're a visitor today and you don't know Jesus and have not put your faith in him, then today is a good day to find out more about Jesus. There's a prayer group after the service this morning or you could talk to one of the staff with regard to who is this Jesus that forgives sins, whom the sea and the waves obey. And you can find forgiveness of your sins. God doesn't always heal us in this life. Some of us will have ailments and sicknesses. And that's part of being in a fallen world. At times God will intervene and miraculously heal and we thank God for that. But the true heart of our relationship with God is the forgiveness of sins. Because that is what will bring us. And whatever sickness or ailment you might have or your friends might have or your loved ones, nothing that a good resurrection body can't heal. In the last day, you'll be whole in body and soul, restored to enter into the glory of God. That lies before us. And with that hope, we live out our lives in this life, seeking to honour the one who has saved us in that regard. Just looking for my water, that's all. as my voice gets a bit croaky. I said that there were four characters in this story. Jesus, the crowd, the scribes, and the four men, plus the paralyzed man. But there's a fifth person, isn't there? Who's the fifth character in the story? Well, of course, the fifth character is the owner of the house. What was he thinking? Well, it's the last time I have Jesus come to my house. Thank you very much. Look at the damage that's been done. I only fixed that roof last month and I've yet to get the insurance done. What am I going to do? A great mighty hole there and all these people sitting all over the house. What's going on? Good grief. Well, he might have thought that. But I kind of think that he went up to his roof put up a sign and said Jesus was here and on this day he healed a man in my house and having a hole in the roof is of no consequence if Jesus is saving someone for those of you who have youth group come to your houses they knock over the coffee cup spill it on the carpet, you've just had it put down or cleaned. They break a cup or a saucer because they're hopeless, these teenagers, they're so gangly. And you think, ah, oh, good grief, I'm not going to have the youth group again. Think again. What cost is it to you to have young people learn the word of God? To have people learn about the salvation of Christ? What small cost it is to you to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. 
what cost was it to God to save you? He's given you every blessing in heaven. Therefore, no sacrifice is too large for you to promote the kingdom of God. Whether it be in your time that you spend, or in your money that you give, or in the relationships that you have, think again of that hole in the roof Whatever hole is in your life, because it's an inconvenience and a loss, but if it's for the sake of the kingdom, it is of much gain. And that's what God teaches us in this chapter of Mark. It's my son, your sins are forgiven. The greatest words you could ever hear, words of comfort, words of challenge, words of consolation, words of security, that at the last day, your sins won't be counted against you, but you will stand before the throne of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven from your sins, and God will say, Enter into my kingdom, my son, my daughter, my child. For you belong to Jesus, and he has paid the price for you. May God be so glorified in our lives that we might shed that glory and share it with others. Amen.